Well, you already heard me talking about grumbling. Now, let me put our grumbling in a little bit of context. We have just, um, um, we've just come from what is probably the high water mark in, in the letter to Philippi, the book of Philippians. Here, Paul describes that, that the church is to be of one mind. We're to be united together. We're to be of one heart, of one passion, of one mind together in the gospel. And it's not just some mind, some direction that we can all agree on and choose together. It's to be a particular mind. He says in chapter 2, I think about verse 5, let this mind be in you together, which is also in Christ Jesus. The mind we're to share is the mind of Christ. And then he unpacks, he describes what does that mind of Christ look like. That mind of Christ is, is one that, that humbles himself, does not disregard oneself. Jesus knew who he was. He did not consider it uh, something to be held on to, to be equal with God. Rather, he laid aside the rights and privileges as the Son of God, and he took upon himself humanity. The incarnation, we spent about six weeks talking about that over Christmas time, how that Jesus united himself with us so that we could be united with him forever. He humbled himself and, and, and took upon himself humanity, came in the likeness of men, and was obedient as a servant, even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. He did that for us. He, he uh, willingly yielded his rights and privileges because he, he considered a higher priority, to use Paul's language in Philippians 2, a higher priority than needs of others. Your needs, my needs. And that is the mind, that is the shared outlook that Paul calls the church to. It is our privilege to live incarnationally. It is, our, it is our privilege in worship to live out the mind and life of Christ in the world, even as the Son of God did. We then, as children of God, have the privilege to, to do the same thing. And so he, he, he urges us into that at the close of the, of, the, of the text where we left off last week in verse 12. As you've obeyed, he says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out, live out, reveal, expose, let it be seen. Your salvation, that transforming redemption that God is working in you, let it be seen in your life. How can that be? How can I possibly show the life of Christ in my life? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God is at work. God is showing himself, his work in us. This transforming salvation is, from glory to glory, a little more of Jesus' life in our lives. That's what it looks like. That's, that's not unusual. That's not exceptional. That is normal Christianity. But... As normal humans, there's something that gets in the way. And at, after that watershed, a, after that high water mark of, of the example of Jesus himself held out to us, but admittedly that seems a little out of our league. Jesus and I are not the same, you see. He's the Son of God and I'm merely me. How can, how can I live out that example 
And so what we have before us in the rest of chapter 2 is a common obstacle and three examples. Three real-life examples. Three real people in real life of what the life of Christ looks like in real life. So we'll look at those three examples, and we'll also look at one common obstacle. And the thing that gets in the way of living out the life of Christ in our lives is not complicated. It's not something radical. It's not something horrendous or terribly scandalous. It's something actually very common that all of us do. And that's that word I was talking with the kids about, gugosmon. Or actually, gogusmon. I pronounced it wrong. Sorry. Gogusmon. Gogusmon, 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 gogusmon. Sounds like grumbling, and that's what it is. Grumbling and disputing is what gets in the way of living out that life of Christ. Let's read Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 14, read through the end of the chapter, and you're looking for, again, that one obstacle and then three examples. Three examples of the life of Christ in real life. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. If you're using the church Bible in front of you, then we'll be on page 981. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, Paul says, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So Timothy is going to be coming soon. Epaphroditus he's sending back right away with this letter. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. In fact, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more the... I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking or needed in your service to me. Father, in a very down-to-earth and practical section of this letter, would you, would you help us to, to pull out, Lord, in encouraging examples and, Lord, an appropriate warning for our own hearts. Father, instruct us out of your word that more of Christ would be seen in our lives. Strengthen us, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So when he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, the thing that gets in the way, the thing that he brings up next, the thing that he says, do all of these, this working out your salvation, do all of these without grumbling or disputing. Now, it surprises me that that's what would come up next. I would think of many other, other things that I might pull in there. Uh, uh, perhaps a selfishness. If, if the self-centeredness of our fallen nature is, is contrary, in contradiction to the giving of oneself away in the mind of Christ, then why not that come up next? But grumbling and disputing is so much more subtle. It easily sneaks in. It quietly slips in and intrude and eats away at the foundations within the body of Christ. In fact, in the words of, in the words of um, um, Kent Hughes, those who continue in criticizing and complaining are an undertow on the body of Christ. You don't really see the threat of it. It's not out in the opening. It, 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 it's it's, it's uh, below the surface. It's hidden away in the background somewhere. And it eats away at the soul of the one who is grumbling and others who are participating and listening. That grumbling or disputing, uh, Kent Hughes says, it will infect the church as a whole, spoiling shared joy, and is the opposite of the body being one heart and one mind together in the gospel. That's the danger. Gogusmon is the word that re refers to the grumbling. And it's just that low level, not actually standing up and contesting and saying, wait a minute, I don't think we're going the right direction here. Wait a minute, I think we're overlooking something. One of the things I appreciate about our, for instance, our, 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 our pastor elder meetings is, is this group of men is not afraid to say, yeah, but I'm not convinced. I'm not sure that's the right way to go. And we do seek to be one heart and mind together and to be informed by the Spirit together leading us in harmony. And when that's not happening, we'll, we'll pause and we'll wait and we'll, we'll explore what the hesitancy is. So it's not disagreeing. It's not being afraid to disagree. That will paralyze as well. That will cause a, a, a group to blindly follow, maybe in the wrong direction. But rather than saying, well, wait a minute, in a place where I have responsibility to speak or to act, to rather behind the scenes. One of the ways it commonly looks like at this church is just the, the random criticism of what other people are doing. You know, I found that criticism normally doesn't happen by the people that are doing it. Take the color of the carpet. Take the color of the walls. You know, the person who's complaining about the color of the walls is normally not the person who painted the walls. Have you found that true in your house as well? The person who painted the walls probably loves it. Even if they didn't choose the color, they love it. They're, they're invested. They're in it. One of the great ways to, to respond to grumbling, to respond to complaining or disputing, is to actually to, hey, you've got some interest in that. Could you join in and help? What color would you like to paint them if you really want to be just, just right out in front and in their face about it? What color would you like to paint the walls next? 
There's walls around here that need to be painted. I'm just picking on walls as an example. I'm not saying that that's the... But there's all kinds of issues. There's all kinds of things that aren't being done quite the way they, they are. Well, how would you like to do that? How could you help make that different? Inviting somebody in is often the best way to respond to this tendency. Often we grumble because we feel powerless ourselves. I can't make any change, and so I'll just grumble about it. And instead, actually inviting into making a change. That grumbling, the pattern, we see it through Scripture. You see it in Joseph's brothers. And it, and it works for a while until it plays out in violence against him. You see it in the life of Israel in the wilderness. Grumbling and complaining. Why did God lead us here? Why does God just give us this manna to eat? Why can't we have, why can't it be the way that it, why can't, and the grumbling that goes on and on. And the grumbling in the wilderness kept, prevented Israel from entering into God's promised life. They did not experience his blessing because of the grumbling. That's what kept them out. We see it in the Jewish legalists against the non-Jewish Christians early in the church. We see it in our own commenting or critiquing on that which is typically somebody else's concern or responsibility. And the world knows how to grumble and dispute. The church is different in this, Jesus said. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That doesn't slowly pick one another apart, grumbling and complaining like being nibbled to death by a thousand ducks. The death of a thousand paper cuts. That's the effect that grumbling has upon the joy within a church body. Point to the good. When you hear grumbling, point to the good. Look at what is done. Look at what is accomplished. Instead of complaining about the, how somebody's doing, I'm glad that they're involved. I'm glad that they're willing to, to get up and take a risk and, and try to be used by God to make a difference. Even if everybody doesn't think it's perfect. Invite them to help. Invite them to join in. We have a responsibility not merely to not grumble. We're not talking about our own mere moral policing or sin management. But, but when there's, a, when there's a, 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 a strife in the church, as there was in, in Philippi, Paul's finally going to actually get to this point in chapter 4. But let's just jump over there. Chapter 4 in verse 2. He says, I urge Yodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. There's a disagreement between these ladies. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who that is that he's addressing here. But I ask you, you who are a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, the rest of, the, of, of my fellow workers. They have been part of the, of the band. They have been part of our ministry team. They were laboring shoulder to shoulder together with others, but there's something that's come between them. And in the responsibilities of others to help these women. And so it would seem that it's a responsibility when we hear grumbling, not merely to withdraw from it ourselves, but how do we help? one another to instead count it all joy? How do we help one another to rejoice in everything 
There is a, 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 an opportunity. There is a reason. There is a point of joy no matter what the circumstance. If Paul could rejoice in confinement in Rome, awaiting possible execution, then you and I can find what we can rejoice in in Christ in the midst of what other circumstances are going on. No Google's moaning, first of all. Rather point to the good. We want to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. There's, a, there's actually a quote there to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. It says that we're to be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's not me, that's not us. That's, that, that's again, that's language that describes Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the innocent one. He's blameless. He's without blemish. And yet he calls, uh, he's the light of the world. And yet he calls us to be lights in the midst of the world. He calls us into his life by the working of his spirit, by God who is working in you, by the one who begin to begin a good work in you and will be faithful to complete it, on that basis we are to be as Christ in this perverse and twisted or crooked and twisted generation. Things are not right around us. But another way that we can grumble, it's not really about the church, we can grumble about the society we can grumble about the culture. We can grumble about how things are out there, separating ourselves from it so that the only input we can have concerning the gospel is to shout from across the street. That takes us out. That takes us out of the ministry that God has given us. That grumbling, complaining might be about one another. It might be about others. Either way, it separates instead of brings together. It gets in the way of our being lights in the midst of this generation. This generation doesn't know what it is to love. This generation doesn't know what it is to love those who differ with them. And we should. No matter, no, no matter, what, we, no matter what we differ in, we have all of Christ in common. And that's worth showing to the people around us. The same Christ that we have that they need also. Now, Paul gives three examples of what this looks like to, to, to lay aside my own interests, to be more concerned about the needs of others. One of the things about grumbling is I'm focused about the way that I want things to be rather than concerned about the needs of others. Often we'll describe our grumbling as if it was concerned for others, but typically it's, it's concerned that things aren't as I would have them to be. So three examples that show the life of Christ in real life in contrast to that are Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Now Paul's kind of, kind of shy about holding himself up. So you have to look for it. But I think Paul is, is the first example that we find here. And you find it in verse 17. Paul says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad I rejoice with you. If I'm going to be poured out, he considers his soon audience with the emperor. It could lead to his martyrdom. It could lead to his execution. If he boldly proclaims his faith in Jesus there and invites the emperor to the same faith, the emperor might not take it well. Nero is not a stable man. And he has seemingly absolute power. And yet Paul's not worried. 
He prays that he would speak the gospel boldly as he ought to speak, and whatever happens, happens. He is in God's hand. And if, and if it's in God's hands for his life to be poured out as a sacrifice, following the example of Christ, he says, for me to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Finish well. Instead of grumbling and disputing, Paul counted his sacrifice for Christ's work, his privilege and his joy. If he's called to sacrifice by, by being in confinement, he's going he's to rejoice in Christ for that. If it's part of his sacrifice to even pour out his life, he's going to rejoice in Christ. Instead of grumbling and disputing, he counts his sacrifice as his privilege and his joy for Jesus. What does that look like for us? Well, sooner or later our lives will end. Let me talk especially to the seniors. Now, this, this is certainly not limited to our seniors. But our seniors live in this circle a lot more closely than most of us do. Some of, us, some of you are younger and you think you're bulletproof and you think the time of your departure will never, never come near. Our seniors are wiser than that. They can look and they know they've lived already more years than they will yet live. Well, that's a lot of us in this room. And yet, as the, as the body wears out, as the flesh grows weak, as the outer man perishes, the inner man, the soul is being renewed day by day. And someday, you might go to the doctor, and the diagnosis is worse than usual. It's not just that you're falling apart, but there's something new that's serious, and, and um, maybe even with intervention, you don't have a lot of time. No more time than Paul has here. And there's a time to finish well. There is a time to finish in hope. Does your hope still stand, and is it clear, and are you able to hold it up toward others when the time of your own departure might be at hand? That's how Paul finishes well here. And, and the aches and pains of aging are not merely something to grumble and groan about. The aches and pains of aging and even the approach when you can see it coming, the approach of death itself is the entrance into the presence of the Lord. And if we, and if we can look at it that way, if we can hold out that kind of reality and hope to our family and friends and even caregivers around us, what a, a, a impactful, powerful, potentially, testimony to the reality of our faith. When I, I, have, I, I have had the joy of going and visiting with people who knew that they were looking at their departure. They could see it on the week's calendar, and their eyes were bright. They were filled with an anticipation that soon they would be in the presence of their Savior. And that's the hope they wanted to leave with the people left around them. Paul's finishing well. No matter what happens, his faith is in Christ and he's anticipating his Savior. He's finishing well. Now Paul's willing to send Timothy. 
He's willing to send Timothy, who is his critical help. He's willing to send him away at a time when he could most need him because his, his, his concerns, his eyes are on others instead of himself. Paul's concerned about the church. He's concerned about Philippi and their worry and anxiety for him. And so he's going to send Timothy, whom he knows he can trust. He's going to send Timothy to them to care for their needs rather than his own needs. Paul is, is emotionally bound. He, he wants to encourage them. He wants to be cheered by news from them. Paul loves this church, and his emotions are linked to it. He writes to the Corinthians. He says, who is weak, and I am not weakened? He said, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant, not against them, but against the enemy or whoever would cause them to fall in that way? He shares the frustration of the fallen. Our lives and hearts are meant to be intertwined in this way that we care about others rather than merely ourselves. You know, our culture seeks to isolate from trouble. Our culture seeks to prevent bad things from happening, whether it's through our wealth and our resources, whether it's through technology, whether it's through government policy. If they had done something, if they had forbidden something, if they had put more rules and boundary in place, these bad things wouldn't happen. But you know what? They will. They will. Man is made for trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job says. There will be trouble. We are broken people in a broken world. And yet in the midst of our trouble, is our focus going to be on how it should have been prevented or in our trust and hope and even joy in our Savior in the midst of that trouble? Paul's not going to let the trouble define him. Paul's going to finish well in the midst of it. The second example is Timothy. Timothy, Timothy simply is different. Now, it's, 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 it's a sad state of affairs, really, that Timothy is so unique, is so different because Timothy is just young Timothy. Well, he's 10 years older than when we first met him, probably. But, but Timothy is not necessarily exceptional. He is certainly willing. He says, I hope to send you Timothy, that you may be cheered by news. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, some commentators said, you know, that's, a, that's an unfortunate that's an unfortunate um, reference to the church in Rome. That Paul, with all the people that he knows in Rome, with all the Christians in the growing church in Rome that he mentions in his letter to the Romans, with all of those, he doesn't have somebody like Timothy that he knows will not be mixed by their own agenda. But that he can send and will sincerely, without mixture, will genuinely be concerned for their welfare rather than his own ambition. In contrast, he says in verse 21, for all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. That's quite an indictment. And yet, it's an easy and normal and regular temptation. We are pressed all the day long by our own needs and our own interests. Aren't we? In ways that are not evil, in ways that are not uh, clearly sinful, but we are continually tempted and marketing presses it in on us to consider what we ought to have for ourselves rather than considering the needs of others. 
That is the current in which we swim. That is the atmosphere which we breathe. And in the midst of that, we're called to be different. We're called to to prioritize others' interests or needs above our own. Even as Jesus looked and saw our needs and elevated our needs above his own. That's the example for us. Timothy is different in that he will genuinely be concerned for the needs of others. I thought about this the other day as I was watching our hummingbirds at our hummingbird feeder. Do you have a hummingbird feeder? Our hummingbird feeders, you've got this big round cylinder, right? And there are four little flowers on there, right? And four hummingbirds together could, could enjoy a lovely time around the table together in hummingbird style, couldn't they? Do you see four hummingbirds together around that hummingbird feeder? Not at all. In fact, if you've got one and he's slurping away and another hummingbird comes along, what happens? He leaves his dinner to chase the other one away because this feeder is mine. This is mine. Who do you think you are to come over here to my hummingbird feeder? There are four different stations. Four could feed at once. And this thing is huge. It'll go a week and a half or two before it needs to be refilled. Now what if that hummingbird knew that before it's ever even empty, we're going to refill it? In fact, when when it's cold outside, we bring it in so that it won't freeze, so we can put it out early in the morning so our bird bird, will be fed. Because he won't let anybody else come. So we've got three of them hanging around the house, so at least we can take care of three when we could take care of, f- of 12, if only they knew that you could slurp the whole thing down and yet we would refill it, there would be all that you need. That is the promise that you and I have in Christ. We needn't act like hummingbirds. We needn't guard what we have for ourselves in our own interests, no matter how much the norms around us encourage us to do just that. In the midst of taking care of our own needs, and we have responsibilities even for our own others, we've got to take care to consider the needs of others and to elevate the needs of others beyond ourselves. Let me get an example of this. I love to tell a better story. You tell a story, I got a better one. I had a situation like that, only mine was a little more dangerous, or only mine was a little more exotic, or only mine was a little something. My story just gets a little better than your story, right? Or that story one-upmanship. It makes it more about me. But what if instead I listened to your story And I looked in there for the thing that I could point out of your success there. Or the thing that I could point out in your story about how God was gracious. And I help you see, maybe you missed it, but I help you see God's fingerprints in your story. What if I listened to your story for that aim rather than competing with you on who's got the better story? How about Facebook? Like Facebook. Do you post on Facebook to increase others' opinion of you or to lift others up? Think about that for a minute. 
I used to love to show pictures of places that I had been. I used to love to post when I had something really especially clever or insightful to say. Oh, won't people think Bob's clever then? Yes, and they will like it. And they might even share it. And they'll tell other people that Bob's clever. And there's a lot of pressure to put something more on Facebook or something that's going to make me look better or more beautiful or look at this nice food that I'm taking a picture of instead of eating. (laughs) And you wish you had that food, but you don't because it's mine. Because I'm a hummingbird. Or do I, instead of posting more, comment more and lift others up in the midst of the things that are going on in their life? Is Facebook about me or about others? What would Timothy's Facebook page look like? There's a question for us to think about. Lastly, we've got Epaphroditus, and we don't know that much about Epaphroditus. Some have suggested Epaphroditus was Pastorditus, that he was the pastor of the church in Philippi, or one of them. That could very well be. We don't know. We, we don't know if he was young or old. We don't know much about him. Some have assumed he's, the, he's an elderly man. What we do know is he saw. We do know that Epaphroditus noticed. You see, what was going on is, is the Philippian church also took great care for Paul. And they knew that he was in confinement in Rome. And the way confinement in Rome worked in a case like Paul's where he's a citizen is he could maintain his own living arrangements and and he would just host a guard with him. So there was a guard with him 24 hours a day and they rotated through shifts. So he always had somebody to talk to, whether whether the guard liked it or not. But uh, he could do that as long as he had the resources. But he can't go out and make tents. He cannot gainfully employ himself while he's under house arrest, while he's in confinement. And so somebody else has to meet the needs to provide for the living quarters and for the food and so on. And the Philippian church was stepping into that need. And they took a love offering for Paul and his needs in Rome. But the problem was the offering is in Philippi and Paul is in Rome. What will they do? They could go to Western Union. Oh, wait. Western Union doesn't exist yet. There is a new app on Chase, and some of the other banks have it too, where you can just put in the amount and the other person's name or account number or something, and and, uh, it'll get hacked and it'll all be stolen. Or it might actually go to their account, and Paul's got it now. Oh, wait. Paul didn't have a smartphone. The only way the offering is going to get from Philippi to Rome is if somebody carries it. And so he fills his pockets with coins, and he is their FedEx. He is their delivery. Down the Ignatian Way, across from the west side of Greece over to Italy, and then up the road from Italy to Rome in order to get this gift to Paul. And along the way, he becomes ill. I don't know, maybe he traveled through Clark County and got measles, I don't know, but... um, Along the way, Epaphroditus gets sick. He's ill, and he probably should pause the journey. He probably should wait, but he has this gift, and Paul has this need. And and rather than thinking about himself, he thinks of Paul, and he presses on. He continues, even though it's not safe for him in his condition. He is willing as well to pour himself out for the sake of somebody 
else. The church and Paul. And he's been given the privilege of being the bridge between them. And he's going to see that through, even at the cost of his own health. He doesn't just stay safe. Epaphroditus could have grumbled and disputed about the hardships or dangers, but he willingly does what was needed to complete the ministry that Christ had given to their church. God had given this for them to do, and he's going to be the bridge to make sure that it happens. He was their messenger in ministry. He was their FedEx. He had every right to protect his health, even as you do. And yet, he didn't merely play it safe. People sometimes question when they're pastor, like there's a projector way up there, and maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I've been on the ladder to change the bulb in that projector before. And some of you cringe at the thought of that. Why is our path? Well, somebody has to be on the ladder to do that. And I climbed 200-foot antenna towers in Africa. And I'll tell you what, there was no OSHA in Swaziland. There was not the job safety kind of conditions and situations that you think of here in the kingdom of Swaziland on those 200-foot antenna towers. And so that's actually not so high up after all. But really, after 20, 30 feet, it doesn't make any difference, does it? It's it's pretty much the same after that. It's just the, the pause between the fall and the landing. But my point is, I'm not, I'm not interested in being risky and reckless, but I'm not interested in playing it safe. That's what I think is set before us here. He doesn't merely play it safe. Where would you not want to go, even if the Lord called you there, because it's really not safe? What people do you avoid because they're not safe? They might hurt you, even though they need you. Here's one for me. Where do your children want to be, or where are your children that you don't necessarily like because it's not safe? I have a daughter and son-in-law, meh. But the grandson, grandson, daughter, okay, we'll take the son-in-law too. They're in, in Harare, Zimbabwe. That is not a terribly safe place. I, I, I will tell you, as, as, as dad and grandpa, I'm not especially happy that they're there. In fact, we, we made arrangements for, for, for Ruth and Kuda and little Jamie to come visit us. They'll be here about six weeks from the end of the year, about, uh, about Thanksgiving time or so, into, in, into January. They're going to be with us. I was joking with Ruth. I told her, well, really... I said, it's only a one-way trip. You're responsible to make your own way back whenever you can. But we're, we're not doing that. We're not playing games with them. Because as much as I might not think that that's the safest place, and the safest place would be just down the street from us, thank you. But, but even though that's not the safest place, what I do want for them is to be right in the center of the Lord's will, right where the Lord would have them to be. And God has set them in a place in difficult times where they don't have the comfort and ease that we are used to, and yet there they are, giving themselves for the sake of others, willing to endure situations in life that they could withdraw from and leave those kids untouched. The, the street kids and others that they minister to there, and they're not going to do that. And while I wish they were closer, I'm thrilled that they've chosen to give themselves away for the sake of others. And that's what's set before us here. 
Now I want you to look back at verse 17. Verse 17, we saw Paul's sacrifice there, but you know there's something more that I don't want us to overlook. In verse 17, Paul says, If I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice together with you all. You see, it wasn't a matter of, here's a, here's a few guys that are exceptional. There are a few Christians among the bunch that really live in what the Lord has called us to. No, what the passage tells us is this is normal for the church. Paul has mentioned something of his own sacrifice, but he also knows something of their together sacrifice. And it might not be noticed individually. It might not be called out particularly and personally. And yet in the midst here and there across this room, you have many opportunities and you're living in them to give yourself away for the sake of another. And that, brothers and sisters, is the life of Christ in you. That is God willing and working in you. That is, in the words of Philippians 1.6, God who began a good work in you, continuing to complete it all the way until the day of Jesus. So when you have these opportunities, whether you're living in them right now or whether they're near around the bend, and when they come, do not grumble, do not dispute it, but embrace the opportunity to take another step in living in Christ for the sake of another, giving yourself away in some way, esteeming others' needs a higher priority in the moment than your own. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. An old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. You've heard the words to, the, to one verse after another before. Whatever aspect in my life that this touches today, Lord, I want your life in my life. I want your life expressed in my life. That's what the song is really all about. So as the ushers come forward, as the worship team comes, as we... Yield ourselves in worship. Don't make this merely about the offering. Make it about, Lord, my life in your hands for your glory. Let's pray. Lord, that's what we ask for. We ask, Lord, that you would be doing your work in us and through us. Father, your, your word calls us to yield ourselves to that mind of Christ, which does not grumble because it does not focus in our own wants or our own rights, but rather looks for and sees and seeks to care for the needs of others. Lord, we want just... Father, we'd ask for one more opportunity to live there. In the midst of the regular stuff of life, in the midst of many needs and demands that crowd around us for ourselves, Father, would you, even today, show us this place or that way that we can give ourselves for the sake of another. And in stepping into that, we would know something more 
of Jesus and his love for us. Father, take these gifts, take what we present, take what we yield before you. Father, use it for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.